0: Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Hey y'all, today we are welcoming the Swedish-born singer Nenna Cherry to the show. Nenna's four-decade-long career has ricocheted between a number of genres including hip-hop, jazz, trip-hop, and punk. Her first single in 88, Buffalo Stance, cemented her standing as a no-nonsense black feminist voice in contemporary urban music. Cherry was living in London when her debut album Raw Like Sushi was released. At the time, she was collaborating with genre-defining 90s electro dance acts like Soul to Soul and Massive Attack. This year, Nana released her sixth album, The Versions. It's a collection of cover songs of some of Cherry's biggest hits, and is performed exclusively by female artists, including Robin, Sia, and Nenna's daughter, Tyson. On today's episode, Bruce Edlam talks to Nena Cherry about her bohemian upbringing in Sweden, New York, and London with stepdad Don Cherry, the famous jazz trumpetist. Nena also recalls how she first met the legendary all-girl punk group, The Slits, and why, despite scoring her first big hit with a cheeky rap verse, she never considered herself a real MC. This is Broken Record. Minor Notes for the Digital Age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hudlam with Nena Cherry. So we're here to talk about the new
1: album, which is The Versions. Yes. Which is your first in four or five years, right?
2: Yeah, and it's a kind of new style of album because I'm not really on it. So, mm-hmm. which has been kind of an incredible experience.
1: Is your voice snuck in here or there? I thought I heard it.
2: I don't know whether it's someone has sampled it or... But, you know, it's really uh, an idea that was hatched after the the reissue of Raw Like Sushi came out. Honey Dijon, my beloved Honey Dijon, made a remix of Buddy X, which kind of came out at the same time, and that kind of then hatched an idea to, well, to ask other people to cover the songs. Initially, it was going to be just the songs on Raw Like Sushi. We were like, well... Let's reach out to like, for instance, Robin, who's a great friend and my sister and someone I really consider to be a great inspiration. But like, I also know that she kind of grew up with Raw Like Sushi. So in a way, it was a kind of no brainer. So she was maybe one of the first people that we asked. And then Sainabuse, who is also a Swedish Artist with Gambian background. She's amazing. And then it just, again, it was like a funny little domino effect. And it was just kind of a joy because I was like, just reaching out to like the artists that I was listening to that seemed to be out there being very much themselves and kind of breaking new molds, you know? So, Females, I mean, it's a female-led project.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, just looking over your career, you don't seem like someone who likes revisiting things. Every album is something new. Uh, Broken Politics is different than the album before. The album before that was the jazz record. What's it like to go back and revisit
2: things? I think there is something quite important about revisiting things. and. You're right. I have always been slightly allergic to relying on the past. I've always felt like I want to move forward because I feel so unfinished and I feel like I'm always battling with my own insecurities and demons, as in like the things around me that question whether, not necessarily whether I'm doing things good enough, but whether I'm reaching the things that I feel that I need, that I want to tap into or express or to be open enough to for those things to flow out. Yeah, and also like being a bit scared of getting caught in some sort of like a karaoke hellhole, you know, where you're just relying on and rehatching things that have already been done because that's what people maybe recognize or know the best. Or I mean, I'm 58. And maybe in that movement of looking forward, always kind of pushed through and pushed ahead. Hopefully, maybe if I'm lucky, I'm just like a little bit over halfway through my life. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's important to kind of take stock. So revisiting these songs, because I think that's kind of what you were asking, has become a very beautiful thing, especially as it's through the eyes of... Other people, and mm-hmm. and a lot of the artists are kind of another generation to me, a younger generation. I mean, okay, we try not to over obsess, but you know, you hope that when you have a a good song, that that song has its own legs yeah. <laughs> that other people can use to walk or run with, you know. And so, it's been like a very cathartic but beautiful journey, and I feel very connected to. All of the different artists that have Sudan archives, Kelsey Lou, Green Tea Peng, my daughter Tyson did a song.
1: Mm-hmm. Your daughter, who is a famous history with Buffalo Stance. Yeah. She was in utero. She, she performed on u- top of the
2: pops. <laughs> she was in utero throughout most of the the journey of making the album and, you know top of the pops and the kind of but, but early she, days she got,
1: you got criticized for being pregnant on I mean, top of the uh, pops people wrote about it like you were you oh, you it was child abuse or you'd
2: oh throwing abs- yourself
1: down the stairs oh, like in yeah, a victorian or, novel or something
2: yeah or, or yeah. like you know i was gonna hurt the child dancing around and mm-hmm. you know that i should be draped in a big black cape or something um and definitely <laughs> not on top of the pops which was like the biggest thing that happened on a once a week on television you know Mm -hmm. I mean I wasn't trying to be some kind of a game changer do you know what I mean like a lot of people are like oh wow that was so like amazing I was just pregnant and and I didn't want to hide it and also like wanting to do things in a different way and I think before I put out Buffalo Stance and before I started working on Raw Like Sushi I had always been in bands and I'd always been in like that family you know and it was mm-hmm. so it was the first time that i kind of stepped out by myself and i felt very well in a kind of fighting spirit of like yes i am here i am a young woman but i'm going to step over the loopholes <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like <laughs> it was like we're going to kick the door down instead of st- strutting out um uncomfortably in a pair of uncomfortable heels.
1: I want to get back to that album and, of course, the new album, but we should talk a bit about your background. You grew up in this bohemian family. Your stepfather was the famous jazz trumpet player, Don Cherry, who played with Ornette Coleman and John Coltrane. And and tell us about your mother as well.
2: Uh, My mother's name was Moki Cherry, and she was an incredible woman. She was an artist. She was a very creative person. I think when Don came, the first time he came to Sweden, he was playing with Archie Shepp in the concert, Hivseti Stockholm, the concert house. And it was the famous night at the concert house when the basement caught on fire, you know, and everyone or anyone that was there will refer to it as the night the stage caught on fire. And no one moved, you know, mm. because the music was hotter than, <laughs> than the flames were going to be. There was smoke coming up through the stage and, you know, people were just sitting there. And I don't know whether they just kind of put the fire out downstairs or whether they took a break, but I think they just kept playing. And I know that when Dom saw my mother and he said, oh, he was," she was wearing this bamboo glasses and this kind of, leather skirt thing that she'd made and she she was Moki was always ahead of her time and so he he definitely saw her and then he came back a few months later and that's kind of when they got together and uh, my mother was someone who I think from like a really young age knew that she wanted to you know in her own way and through her own voice be a part of making the world a more beautiful place
1: and they collaborated on things? They she did collaborated, album covers. you
2: know, for, for many years. I mean, their life story until they couldn't live together anymore was was a collaboration, you mm-hmm. know? And I think the thing that's very important to, to recognize, but I think that anyone that knew Moki and knew Don would say that she made it possible, like she helped him find his wings you know and there's a cute story where the first time they had slept together you know spent a night together don had fallen asleep and when he woke up she had dyed his long underwear pink <laughs> <laughs> and it was like she'd probably done that in a in a pot on the stove you know mm-hmm. we didn't have a washing machine in those days so and they were just probably hanging on a line in the in the room
1: well, that's when you know you've overslept, yeah, when people can die or you
2: just waking up just at the right time, <laughs> but um, so you know they had a very creative relationship,
1: so what was that like growing up in that household?
2: I mean, that's a quite a difficult question to answer in a way. I feel such a great sense of kind of privilege that I grew up in the world that I grew up in, you know, like it's such a it's such a blessing. I mean, I guess I heard music before I was born, right? And I think that, like, the world that was within our house, it didn't look like anywhere else around in the neighborhood, you know, which was kind of sort of stressful for me sometimes because I wanted, to a certain degree, even though I was very much at home in my home, but for it to be like everybody else's homes, you know? and we had like we would sit on the floor you know what i mean we didn't have a couch we had a low cut table then eventually we did have a couch but you know we ate lentils and brown rice you when know, I and we didn't eat mashed potatoes and <laughs> <laughs> you know i would also like to stress because i think that a something that i f- fight with is this sort of people's opinions of like oh it was all very I mean, the word bohemian, I think, is is more respectful than, oh, you guys were just a bunch of hippies and, you know, everyone mm. just sort of laid around and smoked a lot of weed and, you know. And, yeah, okay, people smoke some weed. But <laughs> I think that sometimes it overrides the incredible process that people like my parents and a lot of their peers put into the work that they did, which was very serious, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, There was an absolute commitment to the journey, the work, you know, on a social, political, family, life, sonic level.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you have the same work habits as your parents?
2: No. You know, Don played all day, every day. He was with his instruments. Walking down the street, he would play the flute or his hunter's guitar from Mali, the Duzunguni. I mean, it was just... A part of the movement, his movement, you know?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I can hand on heart say that I wish if I had any regrets in my life that I had worked harder, been more disciplined with my songwriting and making music all the time. I think sometimes I've finished an album and then I've kind of closed the door and kind of gone out into life and not stayed with it. Um, And I think my mother's process, I mean, being a woman and running a house and a family that consumed, I mean, the same as for me, consumed a lot of her time. And for her, it was also a, a schlep sometimes, but also a part of her creative process in a way. But it also took her away from her art. And I know that she really struggled with that, but when she worked... She really worked incredibly hard.
1: It's something I've heard, you know, from a lot of female artists I've yeah. interviewed. If they're a bit older, and you know, they'll say, oh, you took some time off. They're like, well, yeah, I had a family. Yes. You know, Mick Jagger doesn't take time off when he is a family. No. <laughs> he doesn't <Exactly>. have to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, what kind of kid were you then growing up?
2: I mean, I think I've always been quite independent. We lived on Ninth Street. And Second Avenue when I was about eight, mm-hmm. and and we'd been before we moved into that place, we'd been staying at the Chelsea Hotel where I I've just come from today, and I had a friend there who was the daughter of of a painter called Al Loving I believe, and she was living in the Chelsea too. We'd moved to Ninth Street, and when we got down to Ninth Street after a couple of days, I was like, oh, I want to see Anne, and my mother went, okay, well you can walk there. <laughs> So if you go all the way on 2nd Avenue to 23rd Street, and then you go all the way up on 23rd Street to whatever, 8th and, between 7th Mm -hmm. and 8th, 8th and 9th, you'll get there. And I, you know, I did that. And I think now, like, I would never have set my (laughs) kids out on one of those walks. I think I I was quite independent and very sensitive, but also determined to be a okay. And I don't th- think sometimes that determination has meant that I have also shut down certain things to kind of feel all right, which I've dealt with later in life. Mm-hmm. Stress or difficult things to for everything to kind of to be fine. Mm-hmm. And you know, there was a big contrast, of course, between like being in the forest in Sweden, where my parents bought a house in nineteen seventy, an old school house. And then On a regular basis, coming to live in New York, which I'm so thankful for, because I think I would have been a very different person if I had just spent the first 16 years of my life in Sweden.
0: We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Bruce Hedlum and Nena Cherry.
3: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with
4: the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. So visit Snagajob.com or text SNAG to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
0: We're back with more of Bruce Ellum's conversation with Nana Cherry.
1: Do you remember forming your own musical taste? I mean, your stepdad was playing trumpet all the time because that's what professional jazz musicians have to do. Was there a point you were listening to something else and saying, well... This is what I wanted. The Beatles, whatever it was.
2: I mean, the problem is, <laughs> the <it's a> problem <laughs> is that if you look into the the record collection that we still have, which was like the record collection that I grew up with, obviously things have been added to it over the years. It was such a mixture of stuff. So, like, my parents listened to everything from, like. Uh, recording made in the rainforest in in Zaire to the Commodores or the Rolling Stones or, mm-hmm. you know. So within that music, I found my own shit, yeah. you know, like Don bought. And he was always like buying whatever was coming out. So I can remember being like six and listening to the Jackson 5, the first Diana Ross Presents the Jackson 5 or... Sly and the Family Stone and having favorites. Mm -hmm. I mean, growing up in Sweden in the 70s, I mean, all my friends were listening to like English music, like The Sweet. And a lot of my friends at school were like into Donnie Osmond and stuff. And I was (laughs) like, you know, it was like kind of surreal. Mm -hmm. And of course, some of those classic like Sparks records and some of those, you know, British kind of glam pop tunes, ABBA. Yeah. Uh, you know, I spent a whole summer like miming to ABBA songs with my friend. We did a whole show. And then I, like, I was 11, I went to LA to stay with my family there. And I discovered like songs in the key of life Stevie Wonder and Johnny Guitar Watson. And so it's all these parallels. And then at like 15, 14, 15, I got into punk.
1: Is, was punk, was that what told you that you wanted to do this for a living?
2: Yeah, I think so. Was it
1: was there a song or an album that just grabbed you?
2: X-ray specs, polystyrene for sure. Mm -hmm. I think also her being like one of the only other women of color like on the punk scene. There really wasn't that that many. Was obviously a thing, and then just her vibe with like she had braces on her teeth. She just made it look so amazing, and her voice has this resonance and then this kind of bridge sonically that she made between almost like a a kind of folky kind of tonality to then also being her music being very soulful and i think i definitely found my voice singing along
1: now had you had you done formal music lessons because
2: no not really
1: i mean cuz you know some particularly and i i want to talk about manchild later you know that's it's a beautiful melody and it's very sophisticated chords. It's it's an un, it's an a very unusual song. It's very complex. It's got different modes in it. Were those just things you were sensitive to? It was not something...
2: Yeah, I was just following... I was working with an auto chord, ca- a Casio keyboard that had auto chord settings on the left-hand side. And I had a, one or two kind of melodies, which were the... You know, is it the pain of the drinking or the Sunday sinking feeling, which were the two first lines in the first verse. And then I just think I, I sat with the auto chord and I remember particularly in the second verse and it just took the melodies into another mm. place and I just kind of went, went with it and I just kind of kept my little tape recorder going. So, again, it was this kind of weird, instinctual thing.
1: So, when someone comes in and says, there's an E-flat Dorian, you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever.
2: Right. (laughs) And, in fact, my dad was like, you know, you had seven chords in the verse. That's pretty... I was like, okay, cool, yeah, whatever.
1: So, punk is what took you back to England. Right,
2: punk is what took me to England in the first place. Really, right. I, I, we didn't really. It was not a place that I had really spent any time in growing up. And you went pretty young, but I went young. I mean, I was sixteen and when I went there. Were
1: your parents like, "Good luck, try and try and make a career in music"?
2: No, I mean it didn't really happen like that. It's funny. I, I was just on a journey, I guess. You know, I'd been, I'd met the Slits, Ari and Viv and Tessa. When my, you know, when this is another thing, like so many of the threads of my things that have led from one thing to another, it's all kind of connected to my family, you know. Um, so Don had toured with the Slits. You know, they were like discovering jazz, and they.
1: was a great British punk band. We should yeah, explain for
2: yeah, all women, fantastic group. So he brought me on the tour. So I, and then t- towards the end of that tour, I met Ari. I mean, Ari was, we, we found each other kind of thing. We, we were, became friends and then she invited me to come and visit her. Mm -hmm. So I kind of came on like, you know, it was like summertime. I, I just came to hang out, ended up staying at her house. She was still living at her mom's house. And then we just kind of became inseparable, like really, really close friends. And she sort of took me under her wing and then I got a Job working at this place called Better Badges in Portobello Road, and I just kind of stayed, and and then that led into the guys from the pop group forming a new band called Rip Rig and Panic and asking me to sing. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how making music kind of happened, really.
1: So then lead us up to the making of of the first album, Brawl Like Sushi. How did that come about?
2: So I'd been in Rip Rig and Panic, then Float Up CP. And then I'd made a sort of independent thing that came out on Island Records called Ross Egg's Pure Energy. And and then I met Cameron, who I'm still married to and who's been my kind of, you know, lifelong travel friend, mm-hmm. collaborator. And he just kind of said to me at some point, like, why don't you why are you not writing songs? Like, you should write. And um I wrote a song called looking in the eyes of love, and I sang it. I mean, I just wrote it in my head, and I sang it in on a cassette and put it through his letterbox, his mailbox. And then, like, a few hours later, he called me up, and he had put chords to it, and it was a song. I was Mm. like, oh, shit, that's amazing. (laughs) 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 And um, Buffalo Stance was a kind of weird coincidence, right? Which is what kind of then led the album, because it had been on the B-side, of this record called "Looking Good Diving" mm-hmm. by Morgan McVeigh, one of those people being my husband Cameron, and they had this idea of like doing almost like a remix of their tune, which was very pop pop. So to do like a dare I say cooler B side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so no disrespect. So we kind of spent an afternoon just in mine and Cameron's. Flat, as we say in London, you know, using some of the elements of the original and just rewriting the lyrics. Mm. I wrote the raps. We wrote the chorus and the bridge together. And then Nellie Hooper, who like produced Soul to Soul, and DJ Milo, they were kind of part of the Wild Bunch, which then became Massive Attack. So they produced that. And then that just kind of disappeared a little bit. And then my friend Tim Simonen, who was part of the base. He sort of led Bomb the Bass, heard it. He really liked it. And so he wanted to recut it. So that's how Buffalo Stance happened. Because without him, I mean, talk about looking forward. Well, I mean, we were like already past it. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean?
1: I guess, first of all, I should ask you, did the success surprise you then when it became a big hit?
2: We were on a small like tour around England, or maybe a little bit in Europe, with Bomb the Bass. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just, I mean, I was pregnant. I had an a MC with me called Gilly G. I guess we were just kind of playing off um, backing tracks. And we did three songs. And Buffalo Stance was the last song in the set. And we noticed as we were kind of going around the country that people were starting to recognize it. And And I remember one night sitting on my bed in our house in West London. And there was this kind of late night, American Top Ten with Casey Kasem that, you mm-hmm. know, and every week he would show a kind of something climbing up the chart, something that's drawing a bit of attention to it. And lo and behold, there was a little clip of Buffalo Stance. And I was just like, oh my God, this is, because at that point it was still very kind of European and mm-hmm. it had just started to spill into to here.
1: What's amazing about that song to me is... How different it is from a lot of the music that was coming out in England at that point, which was like Massive Attack in those bands. You know, they would try and get a groove going. It was often a pretty simple melodic idea. Buffalo Stance has so many different voices in it. I know they're all your voice, <laughs> but you know, it's like if you count them, it starts with you saying you want a beat. Yeah, you throw in a little expletive there. Then you have that very English accent introducing the... The
2: hi-hat The hi-hat.
1: Then you have... So that's two. Then you start rapping. Now, had you rapped a lot by that point?
2: Yeah, definitely a bit. Like, I think that my... As I was kind of doing my own thing, being such a part of that era and it being su- such a kind of important part of what was going on and inspiring and influential... Yeah, like it was kind of it was kind of a no brainer, and it became a really interesting way of telling stories. So, you know, you can just like be a bit more blatant in a
1: rap. So you rap the verses, and then you've got the gigolo sucker, that yeah. little scratch break, and then you've got your singing voice for the pre-chorus, yeah. and the chorus. So that's your singing voice, but it doesn't stop. That then you've got that spoken break. the what's he like? Now was that a real conversation? How did you? How did that come up?
2: I mean that kind of comes from a, a friend of mine whose name is Fat Tony, who's a DJ and just a really close friend. I've known him for millions of years, and we spent a lot of time out dancing together and out. And he would look at people and go, "Oh my God, what's he like? <laughs> what's she like? Oh God, look at her!" And so, I it was like just it just came into my head when. Right there when we were kind of doing adlibs,
1: but but then you you go back to the chorus. But then you've got that whole different part—the sort the of wind in my face. Oh
2: yeah, the kind of little poem at the end.
1: Uh huh. So I'm just—that's like seven or eight kind of different voices in one song. It's all, it reminds me of um,
2: maybe it's a schizophrenic tune. I've never thought.
1: Well, of Well, <laughs> no, no. It reminds me of old like Beatles songs, like Day in the Life or You Never Give Me Your Money. Like Paul McCartney will use like three different voices. Yeah. Um it's such a full song. It was just it, it it's what it what makes it so different to me.
2: Kind of quirky. I think like I find it hard to kind of be very analytical and to intellectualize about it, but I think it was just well, like one of those Well, that's what we're doing here, so This is well, I don't know if I'm <laughs> very good at that. Um especially not with jet lag, but I think like a very important element of maybe that time was this kind of like fighting against the kind of res- any kind of restrictions. Do you know what I mean? It mm-hmm. was like, well, we don't have to... Like, we can refer to stuff without it restricting us. You know, so, yeah, I'm going to rap, and then, you know, we're sort of ultimately, in a way, without wanting to sell out, still making pop records. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and, and over here, it was, it was sold as a rap record.
2: You know, as you probably know, I'm like... Rap and hip-hop is, like, really an important part of, like, my upbringing and my identity. Like, I was so in awe and loved MC Light and, you know, Queen Latifah. You know, there were all these amazing women, actually, on the Roxanne Chante. I have to be honest and say, of course, help me find my voice. But, you know, in my eyes, I was never as cool as them they were like an inspiration to me but you know what i was doing i would say it's not that it wasn't authentic but you know what i mean it was something else mm. so i would never really have been comfortable in saying like yo i'm a i'm like i can kind of rap but i'm not a rapper like in the sense that give me a mic and i'll freestyle for half an hour no unfortunately i oh, wish oh okay no
0: we're we going to do that right here
2: yeah no no i wish i mean in my dreams.
0: We'll be right back with more from Nana Cherry after the break. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet?
3: This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at TMobile.com slash now. Snag
4: a Job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
0: We're back with the rest of Bruce Headlam's conversation with Well
1: You talked a bit about writing Manchild, and you talked about how you wrote the, that, the melody and the chords. You know, it's, it's also a, a song that's full of great lines, that reminds me of, of some of your later stuff, like on The Blank Project or Fallen Leaves, which was on your last album, which was just such a beautiful song. It's got that great line, you know, through the speaker boxes, uh, loud's my diagnosis. I believe in miracles and words in heavy doses, which mm. I thought was just great, great <laughs> line. Um, who are your lyrical influences then?
2: Actually, a big inspiration for me lyrically, I mean, I love Minnie Ripperton. I was just talking about her in the car on the way here. But also Gareth Sager, who was in the pop group and then in Rip Rig and Panic, he wrote the songs. And Mm. a lot of you know, I sang his lyrics kind of I mean, I was like really young and sometimes I didn't really understand what I was saying. Right. But playing with words. And I think reggae music, like moving to England and and living there, in the early 80s, I mean, all those Gregory Isaacs and Dennis Brown and going to sound systems were also like a huge influence. But I think lyrically, I mean, it's it's like a combination of things, you know.
1: Are you the kind that has to sit down every day to do some writing?
2: No, I don't. I should do, but I don't. I think it would be quite good for me if I did, but I don't.
1: Mm-hmm. When you've got an album coming up then, you just make yourself?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have a kind of getting inside and there's a waiting room and the battle is to kind of get inside. There's a zone. You know, I quite often maybe get slightly obsessed when I'm writing lyrics and looking for things and waiting for the, to get the kind of click in my head, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to use, for me, life experiences, you know, to... To me, they're like stories, you know, telling a story. And when I start a song, it's like I need to find the grain. Like, what is this song about? Where am I?
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Can I give you an example from Fallen Leaves? Yeah. Just because I'm down, don't step all over me. Yeah. Just as an example, that's at the end of a a long chorus. But what was that about? How did you you get there?
2: I started writing that song. I live quite near to the canal in London. And I know I was walking on the canal and... It was literally like probably a quite autumnal thing going on. And and I just had this sense of, you know, when you're just like hearing traffic and the world going on around. And I think I was thinking about most people that would like to indulge in your story when you're on the ground are not that interested. <laughs>
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. It, were you go, did you go through something like that at that point? Was there something public? I mean, public? you know,
2: I'm, I'm a human in life. I've gone through all oh, okay. kinds of shit, you know, as right. we do. But I just think that I it's it's pretty hard to not be aware of that kind of the vultures come and sit by you when you're actually down on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you're up running along, I think. So... Ultimately, I guess it's maybe a song about survival, actually.
1: Well, we haven't talked enough about the new album. Yeah. Uh, and one of the great treats on this album, I, for me, and I, I think it's going to be for a lot of people, is the version of uh, Woman. Yes. By... Anoni. Uh, Anoni. you know, who brings the complete, huge set of experiences to the song. So tell me first about writing the original that was on your third album. It was on man, yep, uh, what inspired that song?
2: I mean womanhood being a woman shamelessly wanting to write a song about what that means, not having to make any excuses, you know, like, okay, this is woman. I think also, like Don, my dad was there i was I might have been pregnant with Mabel, and he was kind of dying. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Not kind of. And I think uh, there was also maybe a co- more complex thing going on where, you know, I was creating a child, you know, Mabel was in utero. I was also a daughter to my dad who was dying. And there were so many reflections of my own womanhood going on around me and being 33 or something and having had a just kind of coming over a threshold. Of coming out of the 20s into the 30s and, you know, you're trying to find your so-called authentic self or something like that. Anyway, it's a song. And it's a song that sometimes has also annoyed me. Well, why is beca- that? Because I find it sometimes that, like, I found it sometimes a bit restricting and sometimes in later years I found the production a bit, like, pompous hmm. <laughs> with strings and, you know... This is a woman's world, you know, like I was like, oh my God, I don't, I kind of wanted to take it out of the box. And I think that's what Anoni's done. She's just made it bleed more in a way that I think mm-hmm. is really, like it really needed to happen.
1: Now, the original, I assumed, was a, a bit of the the strings and everything. You, you were trying to evoke the the James Brown, it's a man's world. Was that deliberate? Yeah.
2: I wouldn't say that I would dare to say that it was an answer, but it was a part of the discussion.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. There's two other projects I want to ask you about briefly. The first was uh, The Cherry Thing, which is when you did Freeform Jazz, much closer to the stuff yeah. your stepfather did. What was that like?
2: I could, to tell you the truth, I think that Cherry Thing record kind of saved my life, and it kind of brought me back into being able to, to make records because I hadn't made a record for 17 years or something when I made that. And I guess it was just like kind of stepping into a zone in music that was kind of like in my very much in my DNA. Mm-hmm. And it, there was a kind of freedom, and I felt so harnessed by the musicians. And we did more or less most of the records, um, songs on that record are cover versions. So we chose three songs and we did one take of each Mm -hmm. you know and a lot of things had happened my mother had died you know not four years or three years before that and I had been totally traumatized by that and I'd of course been collaborating and doing music along the way and Mm -hmm. bringing up the family and then but just yeah just getting to that place where it's like I knew that if I didn't do something soon I was going to kind of crack up do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. it was like I was way down I think with too much stuff
1: it was part of it just expectations that if you come out with a solo album years after your last one was Man I I guess yeah and like
2: not quite knowing where I wanted to go even though I had a very strong sense in a way of where I wanted to go Mm -hmm. but there was something in that Cherry Thing experience where I could fly and it was very amazing to just work with the musicians to feel that we were so connected and to improvise a lot of the time.
1: Well, you you were going you know? to a place that would terrify most people, just yeah. pure improvisation.
2: I think it was really important. And I mean, we had structure, but there was a kind of... I felt like harnessed and like they were pushing me at the same time, but kind of the music was, was there holding me up. And I think that that departure away from that kind of thing in pop music that can be slightly self-conscious and kind of wrapped up in itself was so great. And then I kind of came back in, so I made the Cherry Thing record, and then Kieran Hebden-Fortet remixed the suicide song, Dream Baby Dream, that we did a version of on that record. And then we then made two records together Mm -hmm. after.
1: And I'll I'll finish on this, because it interests me. You know, we we. We've talked about Buffalo Stance, which was such a great song, such a huge song, and then you had Money Love after that, and a couple other big hits. Seven Seconds, I guess, was one Just of your biggest. Seven hits.
2: Seconds might have been the biggest hit of all of them, actually, mm-hmm. in Europe. Yeah, not so much here, but.
1: But if you were a, if you were American artist, you might be you wouldn't be a one hit wonder because you had more than one hit, mm. but you would be the gravitational pull of those songs would be very heavy. You'd be yeah. performing them on cruises or in casinos or something like that.
2: So that's my absolute nightmare. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you've, you've managed to, to, to keep this start with this hugely popular record, and you keep doing very experimental work. Is, is being in Europe, is living in England, is that more conducive to that kind of work?
2: I don't think it's so much about where you are. It's about what you do you know and i think that there was a part of me that found that like fine i could go and do the whole pop thing and turn up at the smash hits awards and we had our little crew and our family of people and you know sure made some mistakes along the way but we tried to do things in a new way in our way and to kind mm-hmm. of keep it as close to our hearts as we could but but i just found that there i just couldn't stay in the straight line inside you know, on that treadmill where it was like, okay, you make more records that sound like Buffalo Stance or make more. And I'm sure, of course, I could have maybe have had more success and made more money and sold more records, but it just wasn't really so much where I belonged, you know. And I found that I worked really hard and I learned a lot and I'm really thankful, but there were also elements of it that I was like, It's not really what I'm living my life for. Yeah, I, you know, made some conscious decisions to absolutely keep veering to the left.
1: So what's next, you know?
2: Yeah, I'm just about to go into writing some new music. I haven't made any new music for a while. Maybe not to make an album. Maybe it will be more in the shape of like an EP or something like that to start with.
1: Okay. We'll come back when you're done.
2: Well, I will certainly try to do so. Okay, thank well, you. thank
1: you very much. Thank you. It's been a complete delight. And, it's been and great. People thank should, you. everybody should be going out and listening to this. And all your other albums, too. Well,
2: it's all there to be had. Go and listen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks to Nana Cherry for sharing stories from her and her family's supremely creative life. To hear our new album, The Versions, as well as our favorite Nun Cherry songs, check out the playlist at BrokenRecordPodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash BrokenRecordPodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at broken record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Holiday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez, with engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. For theme Music's by Kenny Beats, I'm Justin Richmond.